welcome to the Bloke and the Bird show. Happy Independence Day. Happy Silverstone race weekend. What else? What else? I don't know. Three-day weekend? Woohoo! At least if you're in the U.S. Uh, well, you know, we should also shout out to our Canadian friends. July 1st was Canada Day. A. Oh, okay. Happy, happy Canada Day. Hey. You know, our, our friend Todd likes to tell the, the story, his, well, his big Canada joke about how Canada really, the word Canada only has three letters in it. Right, C and D. Yeah, and, well, C N D. C N D. Sound like you said and. I didn't. But there's another really good joke that we heard that is a perfect description of the the difference between a Canadian and a New Jerseyan. Okay. Or a New Jerseyite. Okay. In Canada, they look at you and go, "Get off the lawn, eh?" And in New Jersey, they go, "Hey, Get off the lawn. <laughs> it's the same words. They just flip the. In, in case anybody didn't get that now. Yes. Thank you. You scared our in-house audience. She is unappreciative of your uh, screaming. Well, as we mentioned, this week was Silverstone and there was a lot going on in the lead up to the race this week. Well, yes. I mean, we are very clearly in the middle of silly season. And we start with a story that came out yesterday, which is either going to be the silliest of silly season stories or pretty groundbreaking. Well, earth-shattering, I should say. Not really groundbreaking, but earth-shattering. The fifth dentist caved and Trident's now five for five? No. Oh. Rumor has it, according to the folks over at Autosport, Aston Martin is in talks with Red Bull over, a, among other things, not just taking over the team or, or uh, having naming rights of the team, but a Mercedes engine deal. I saw that. Um, this would obviously be a pretty shocking return to Formula One because Aston left many, many years ago after doing dismally. Um, they competed in uh, 1959 and 1960. Mm. Um, the deal is still a negotiation, um, but like I mentioned, Aston Martin would become the brand partner with Red Bull in exchange for brokering a deal for it to run the Mercedes engine. Now, what we do know, and, and I can only assume that this is going to be um, a 2017 deal, if it is actually true, because we do know that Renault and Red Bull, their contract goes through 2016. Right. Now, you combine this with some of the other rumors that have been flying around uh, the paddock, Supposedly, if you listen to the guys over at NBC Sports, at least during their free practice coverage, supposedly Renault has been sniffing around a few teams. They're claiming that uh, Renault has already been in to see Lotus and checked out their facilities and everything that's going on. Now, the little history there with Lotus is that way back when, that was Benetton. 
Benetton left, it became Renault. Renault sold it, it became Lotus. However, Lotus is running Mercedes engines now, not Renault engines. So obviously there'd be some contract issues there. Right. Rumors also had it that, and, and we have predicted the possibility that Force India may be having some additional financial difficulties. Rumor has it they may be in play. And then, of course, there's always Manor. Now, the, the big disqualifier with Manor is that compared to, say, Force India or uh, Lotus or even, for that matter, Toro Rosso, there's no real infrastructure over at Manor. Well, that's the problem when you've put a team together with string and paper clips. Yeah, but they've got more sponsors. They got two now. Uh, no, three. They're up to one, three. One of which is a major side pod sponsor that has changed the colors from red and white to red, white, and blue. They would be, I believe, either Shovebox or Squeezebox. It really says a whole lot about their coverage that I don't know the full name of the new sponsor. However, they do have a new sponsor. You know, the first sponsor that they got on the car was Airbnb. Yes. And I only mention this and call us out, but Airbnb has been spending a metric ton of money on advertising everywhere. Do you know that they have become uh, big players in like two of the last conferences I've been in? So I'm aware of that. Yeah, they were actually one of the featured pieces in the conference I just got back from. One of the keynotes was about their play in the space, in the marketing space, um, you know, in my day life in online marketing. Um, and you didn't go up and talk to them and say, hey, look, you guys sponsor one of my favorite F1 teams. Get me a shirt. No, because I know Manor doesn't make shirts. But this would be a sponsor. Maybe they could have encouraged it. What they had was, it wasn't Airbnb there. It was somebody analyzing Airbnb's uh, um, acquisition and, and growth. But they are on a meteoric rise, which I thought was kind of interesting. Now, you know, the other bit of silly season news, and we talked a little about this last week, is the talk about Kimi Raikkonen's seat. And this has gotten a lot of press and a lot of talk lately, um, including David Cothard, one of your favorites, who has come out and basically said in no uncertain words that he believes that Kimmy is pretty much past his sell-by date. I believe that was his actual words. I'm not terribly surprised. He's a senior statesman in Formula One. Um, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that people really don't make it very far in Formula One post-35. Well, it's also the what Cothard's point is, as much as in one of the fan surveys that has just come out, Kimmy has been named as like the most popular driver in Formula One over and above Lewis and Vettel and everybody else. But what Cothard points to and he says, you know, it, it's really hard to come to this conclusion when you're sitting in the seat. And, and he can say this in, in, in retrospective, but at some point you have to look at your performance and say that is, and, and he says, as much as he likes Kimmy, you're just not at your peak anymore. You're performing well, but you're not performing as well as you should be. And at that point, it's time to say goodbye before everything completely falls apart. Or in this case, you're forced out. Well, and I think that we have a precedent. If you look at Michael Schumacher, of all mm -hmm. people, he left Formula One. He was forced out the first time 
but he was still on a pretty high. Yep. But came back to dismal results when he came back. And I think that is kind of telling you don't want to be there. Leave on a high note. Go do something else. Do something phenomenal in some other sport that has a little bit more longevity that you can, you are still at your peak. Well, he can jump into WRC, which he likes. Mm -hmm. He can jump into WEC. There are other opportunities for him. This may be the best time. And Andy Benson over at the BBC, who's their their chief F1 writer, he put a piece up this week speculating as who the possible replacements are. He he thinks that Kimmy Seats... His future with the team has probably already been decided, and I kind of agree with this. Um, but the first one, apparently, that he says, and we heard some talk about this also, that Ferrari's number one choice is, of all people, the person that they left behind over at Red Bull, Daniel Ricciardo. Interesting. Um, of course, and, and Horner admits that they did take a look at uh, Ricciardo um, instead choosing to go for Vettel. Uh, but they didn't offer the team any money. Horner, at this point, his words when he spoke to Eddie Jordan uh, in their run-up to the Grand Prix said that Ricardo's contract is watertight. But Eddie says no contract within Formula One is watertight. Well, that's the, tr- the, the, the point that even Andy says here is that, you know, you can't make a man work where he doesn't want to. And given the problems with Red Bull's engine at the moment, Ricardo may be willing to go. So, but it also it could benefit Red Bull given the talent that they've got sitting over at Toro Rosso right now. It allows them to bring up Verstappen if they deem that he is ready, or Sainz if he's ready. Both of them are promising-looking drivers to go and slot next to Kvyat or to Jettison Kvyat, which is a possibility too. Um, I mean, the, truly, we could play three-card Monte with a bunch of different teams and players here. The other one that he throws out, um, Nico Hulkenberg, which I think would be the choice. I think that's the best for Nico, and I think that would be best for for Ferrari. Um, he says that their interest in Bodas, which they were very keen on last year— has kind of waned because he has not been regularly beating Massa this year, mm. which I could understand that. You know, the, you, you got rid of Massa to bring in Raikkonen. It doesn't make sense to go and grab his teammate, who's not beating him, to replace Raikkonen at that point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that seems a little odd. He also theorizes that they may be facing – and, and here's a name we haven't discussed in a while. They may be facing pressure from one of their sponsors, one Carlos Slim, oh, who we know very much wants to bring Mexican drivers to the forefront. He is the big money man behind Esteban Gutierrez, who is their reserve driver. He's the money man behind um, uh, Perez. So... There's that possibility. He he has quite a bit of money tied up in Ferrari right now. Yes, but I think that Perez having that failure over at McLaren does not bode well for him to get called up to Ferrari. 
it would have made better sense if Ferrari, if McLaren had been less willing to punt him back to the mid-pack for Ferrari to look at him. But the sheer fact that he couldn't make it at McLaren past a year? Well, there's that, but there were other issues going on there. I still think, given the choice between Force India drivers, Hulkenberg is the better option. Um, the other case that we have heard this week regarding Kimmy's future and why Kimmy could be leaving. You know, last year they, they were very strong behind him. However, leadership and management has changed at Ferrari. Combine that with Vettel coming in and working very hard to integrate himself into the team and to work with the team and to be behind the scenes helping do everything that he feels that that team should be doing. He has basically taken the Schumacher role. Mm -hmm. Kimi doesn't do that. And Alonso, to some extent, really didn't do that either. So here you have a new team or, or a new management team, which is very businesslike. And you look at, okay, you have team player who has brought you podiums and, and a race win. And then you have grumpy guy who, while he may be a fan favorite, has been underperforming. Well, I want to take a minute to talk about this being a fan favorite. Okay. Um. Now, I will tell you that when I filled out the driver's survey, he was not listed as my fan favorite. And I don't think he's listed as one of your fan no. favorites. Um, but I think that the pundits love the shortness of him. His his. It's the bad boy attitude of him that James Hunt feel. That James Hunt feel. And I think that they... They popularize it with everything that Kimmy says is so fantastic because he never says anything very often. Mm. Or, oh, this is the most animated we've ever heard of Kimmy. The truth is, if you can put on a table everything that Kimmy has ever said, you don't have a whole lot that's worth a whole lot. True. And I think that the perception is there's more depth there than there really is because he doesn't say a lot. And I think when you put that up against a company man like Jensen Button, mm -hmm. you discount what is a perceived fan favorite versus who is truly beloved. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think that people like him because he's seen as being so super cool. But I don't know if he's actually that cool. <laughs> there, I said it. In my out loud voice and all, I'm not a Kimmy fan. Okay. Um, now, Daniel Ricardo has come out and said that uh, he thinks a move to Ferrari is unlikely. Okay. His own words. So that may take Daniel out of play completely at that point. We'll see. Um, in other silly season news, you know, we talked last week the rumors flying about the possibility of a buyout for CVC and, and what those signs look like. Donald McKenzie, who's the co-chairman of CVC Capital, um, says that right now the firm is not interested in selling its majority holding in Formula One. Now, that is this week. Right. But they probably haven't seen the pr proposal yet either. Yeah. Do we want to take a second to discuss what is wrong with Formula One? Um, no, only because we have our the, – the 
we, we the strategy group met this week. Yes, they did. Do you want to jump to that, or do you want to jump to the new catfight? No, I want to talk about what the strategy group did because I want to sum with the catfight. Okay. Is that fair? Okay. Well, the strategy group met this week, and as a reminder, some of the honestly really wise words that came out of Christian Horner this year, that this is the group that the, the players in it really need to be thinking beyond themselves. Well, that's or because at, he wouldn't do that when he was winning. Or as VJ Malia has said this week, they really need to figure out how to uncrapify Formula One. Okay. <laughs> which may be a little in the extreme. Well, he's playing off of what Bernie said, which yeah. is that they've given him crap to sell. And I've got to – I want to take a little side bend here because senior statesman over at Mercedes, Toto Wolf. Mm-hmm. has spoken out pretty vehemently that the stakeholders of Formula One are their own worst enemies. Absolutely. And he says that we have gotten – This is, these are some uh, excellent quotes from him. We've gotten into a spiral where everybody with a negative message to deliver has found an ear. All of us involved in the sport are stakeholders, and our duty is to help promote it and make it attractive. Wolf is is an increasingly calm figure at the vanguard of Formula One, but he has has crossed point the incandescence at the way of the sport has become to attack officials, drivers, and commentators. It's it's become a target. And what most recently, Bernie Eccleston with his use of the word crap. On Saturday, Eccleston said, we are damaging it ourselves and I am as guilty as anyone. Hallelujah. I know. He'll forget that next week. But, I know. You know. <laughs> Followed quickly by Max Mosley, um, who said, there are no two ways about it. If Formula One continues on its current path, we are headed for a major crisis. The futures of six out of the ten teams on the grid are uncertain, and there's too much artificiality, and the racing costs are far too high, and it is giving an, us an uncompetitive and, at times, boring racing. That's Max. Drivers past present past and present have lined up to attack the support the sport and wolf however says the way we are speaking about it and writing about it determines the way it is perceived because how many people have access to the paddock and are able to look at the cars and make a judgment the answer is very few but there are tens of millions watching a grand prix at weekends and what we are telling them is what they perceive to be happening. If we are our own worst salesmen, how will we ever get them to buy our product? It is like the CEO of a car company saying, my car is a crap car. Who is going to buy that? I know people will say about me, but of course he is criticizing because he is winning. But we are developing a negative momentum, and if you are in a spiral of nonstop criticism, it will trigger opinions from people who have no clue. Yeah. I pink puffy heart Toto Wolf right now. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, we. He, okay. I'm almost done. He goes on to say that the current 
view of Formula One from the Formula One insiders is the equivalent of putting on your Facebook profile your most ugly picture and saying that you're not actually very sporty, not very intelligent, and not very good looking either. But please like me. (laughs) We need to take criticism on board, but we need to be positive. Yes and no. There, There is a limit to how much you need to look at Formula One with those rose-colored glasses, and we'll talk about that a little more in a sec when we get past the whole, roos, the, the whole rules and the strategy group bit because there is some rose-colored glasses here that are going on and that's causing a pissing contest. He's right about that to some point, but I think they've also realized, and I can only assume that Folks like Toto have came to the realization and, and learned from what happened from after the last strategy group meeting. Yeah. You know, if you remember the last strategy group meeting they had a couple of months ago, everything that they discussed, all the changes that they proposed, all of that came forward. And instantly everybody, especially the refueling one, it, everybody jumped out and said, ooh, we, refu- refueling, 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 this is great. Oh, wait, no, it's not. That's really kind of stupid. <laughs> and... A lot of the other rules, hey, we're going to make the cars five to ten seconds faster, and then you have Felipe Massa coming out and going, "Um, yeah, okay, so you make the cars five to ten seconds faster, but since most of your fans watch this on TV, whether they're five to ten seconds faster or 15 seconds slower, you can't tell. So they, after this meeting, they came out and said that, yeah, we came up with some agreements with some changes. We're just not going to tell you what they are yet. Pretty much. So it sounds like they are going to try to do a little bit more behind closed doors, which is probably going to piss off a few and not piss off some other people. But let's be a little bit more mindful about how we talk to the press and how we publicize what we're doing. Now, one of the changes that they have made, and I'll be honest with you, I really don't completely understand it but it is coming soon we're going to hear we're going to learn about this in two weeks is starting in spot or not two weeks in two races it's going to be a month and a half mm-hmm. um but starting in spa which is amazingly two races away um a change is being made to how the clutch works at least at race start one of the computer pro- best I can gather is that one of the computer programs that is used to control the clutch at start and where the bite point is and all of that is being taken away. Right. And the driver has to figure this out now somehow. It's putting the control of that of the start in the driver's hands. The the measure is an attempt to change the perception that these cars are basically on autopilot from the pit lane and What I think, my best guess, is that we are going to see more possibility of poor starts or stalled starts because that's what they're going to be looking for is the drivers being in complete control of the start. Now, the other things that have been tossed out there is the possibility of a Saturday race. Mm-hmm. In addition to the qualifying session, in addition, the possibility that the younger drivers, your number three drivers, your reserve drivers, may get a race as well. That could be very interesting. It could be. Now, I think if they do that, 
Would that be like a Formula One and a half? Well, no. I think what they should do, though, is they should run a third car for that. Mm-hmm. That way, if your number three driver turns around and wrecks a car, it doesn't destroy the rest of your weekend. Yeah, that would be bad. But the issue with that becomes cost. Now you have teams that have to have race ready every weekend, a third car, and they don't do that now. So that that could go away. Um, Vettel's already come out and said he's not a fan of either of those options. Um, but we'll see where that goes. Again, nothing official has been really published as to what they decide, other than that they decided some stuff. All right, so stuff has been decided, more to come. So, does that bring us to our... Spitting cat hum- fight. Wow. Well, you know, before I jump into that, because we're talking about McLaren and the way things have gone and how poorly, and it, this is a good lead. Okay. I'm going to play a clip for you. Now, this is a clip that we have heard, but I want you to see if you can picture when, at what point in the season this was actually said. Okay. Okay, you ready? Mm-hmm. I think normally you don't understand other people's packages, but at the moment we don't understand ours fully. Well, now I- that's Jensen Button commenting about his car. So we know that. Mm-hmm. We'll, 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 we'll level set that. But when do you think that was said? Well, I think I'm pretty sure in, uh, that it got said in Australia. Because, or like before the start of the season, Possibly right after the last, yeah, it was Australia, right? It was. Woohoo, I won. If you what think do I of, win? But if you think about it, that could have just as easily been said in a run-up to this weekend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it could have just as easily been said in a run-up to this weekend after we heard from Eric Bouye, Europe is going to be so much better. When we get to Europe, everything's going to turn around and we're going to be great. Ron Dennis is still saying that McLaren is going to have a podium by the end of this season. And Eddie Jordan said, called it on that. Um, okay, now I have to beep that out. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Bull poo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You, you can imagine exactly what, and actually, that wasn't a direct quote. That was a summation. However. Well, what Jordan actually called for was Ron Dennis to step down from McLaren. Yeah, Eddie did earlier this week. There was a Q&A that was published on uh, BBC Sports Formula One website. And I think he, maybe a little bit much, but he did say that, uh, Ron Dennis is currently running McLaren worse than Martin Whitmarsh, who Ron Dennis kicked out. Correct. And in response to that, Ron Dennis said, I consider F1 a family. Families live in villages, and there's always a village idiot. He fits the bill perfectly. Yes. Yes, you just heard correctly. (laughs) Ron Dennis called Eddie Jordan the village idiot. Now, if anything... I would think Eddie Jordan would fit the bill of class clown. I mean, just look at his clothes. Well, he is um, (laughs) cartoonish in his clothing. And he's typically very entertaining. So that's why I would go with class clown and not so much village idiot. However, what I will tell you is that often the village idiot is the one that speaks the truth when no one else is willing to listen. Now, this is not 
fresh and new. It, it's not like all of a sudden Ron Dennis has decided he's going to go fire shots at Eddie Jordan and vice versa. No, apparently they've had quite the history. Yes. Um, but Eddie's further comments about this is, you know, you can say Honda's a mess, but so are McLaren. They've been a former shadow of their former selves since they arrogantly stated that Lewis Hamil- Hamilton would rue the day he left McLaren. And, okay, admittedly, they weren't the only ones who said that. <laughs> um, you know, look how that has re- rebounded on the team. The arrogance is still there at the top of McLaren. They are hopelessly off the pace, and anyone who thinks it is just the engine is deluding himself. The engine is a lot of it, but there are lots of other issues there. I personally think the day McLaren started building road cars was the day they took their eye off the ball in F1, and I will be surprised if they ever come close to winning titles again while that car program is still going on and while the current manager management structure is in place. And that whole road car concept and business was Ron Dennis's idea and Ron's baby. He brought that in. Mm-hmm. There were some other things that, that Eddie said uh, in that Q&A, which were kind of – one of the things that he pointed out is one of the, the other issues that is with Formula One is regarding the teams and the small teams and the money distribution. And his attitude is – he actually agrees that, yes, Ferrari, they deserve to get the kicker that they get. There is a historical reason and a, and a precedent and a desire and a need for Ferrari to be involved. However, the thought that Force India can soundly beat McLaren and get the same amount of money or less than McLaren, he believes is ridiculous. Along the same lines, he feels that there should be a very clear path from the junior series, not for the drivers, but to bring teams up from, say, GP2. He says there are some really good quality teams in GP2 for them to move up into Formula 1. Right now, the financial structure, he and, and he's right about this, discourages teams from coming, especially from the junior circuits, because the rule is, as as it's written, is that a new team that comes in, even if they come in and they hit the points and they are a strong mid-pack or better team, for the first three years that they are in the sport, they get no money. Correct. Which discourages new teams from coming in. Yeah. And he argues, and this is right, that's just ludicrous. I mean, why would you join a sport when you're already told that for three years you've got to fund it entirely on your own and you're not going to get any money from the sport itself, that you are advancing by the sheer nature of being there. Yeah. I mean, yes. It, that part makes no sense at all. But Eddie has always been very pro, well, I don't think it's some of it is his own history, pro-development teams. Yeah. Um, but I think that he felt the squeeze when it was Jordan racing. And he understands. He's got a heart for that. Now... The last person that we have to talk about who has criticized Formula One, mm-hmm. he is argue, especially this this year, he is arguably probably the last person you would expect to criticize Formula One. He has come out when when people have said that the cars are too easy to drive, and he says that you know I've got to work hard, and this is there is a lot of work that goes into this. All the the various pieces that he has refuted, but Lewis Hamilton of all people has come forth and criticized Formula One. What he, he is he is criticizing him for, and he's actually kind of right, 
Um, he's urged F1 to look at the, its trophies after labeling the current designs terrible. <laughs> now, you may recall, if you have been watching for the last couple of years, he was, especially if you saw the BBC's coverage, he was very upset by the trophy that he got last year winning Silverstone, which he called it a 10-pound trophy, in, as in pounds as in money. Phil, this is for you, I'm clarifying, not as in weight, but it is <laughs> cost. He, he, he thought it was rather cheap, um, including saying that he thought it was falling apart oh and my. asking for the gold one when he was up on the podium. Um, but he has taken his complaints ahead of Silverstone to Bernie Eccleston, and Bernie actually brought him to the trophy designer so they could have a discussion about it. Um, but he's quoted by the Daily Telegraph as saying that we need to make better trophies. It's shocking how bad the trophies are. The trophies are as good as at go-kart level. It was really bad. <laughs> Formula Renault was just little boxes with a car in the middle. Formula 3 was good. In the beginning of my Formula 1 career, the trophies were really good. But now they're just terrible, man. They're so bad. I told Bernie, and he got the trophy guy in the room, and I just said, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So we'll see what happens. Now, one of the ones that they mentioned is last year's Austrian trophy or trophy or last week's trophy for Austria was mostly made out of wood, mm. which he doesn't like either. No, it should be metal. Now, Melbourne's trophies, those are pretty good. I mean, they look like a steering wheel, but they're big and they're heavy and they're substantial and they're shiny. Shiny is good. <laughs> so what do you think? Do they need better trophies? Can I be grossly honest and tell you I don't care about what the trophies look like at all? Okay. I know. You would think I'd be about the bling, but I'm not about the bling. I think they should be interesting looking. Some of them are. Some of them are not. Which is the one that's the shape of the track? Um, well, Austria just did that. Um, Monaco does. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's one other one that is also the shape of the track. Speaking of shapes of the track. Okay. If you watch the BBC coverage, you might have noticed that Susie Perry had a beautiful necklace on. You're going to plug, aren't you? I am plugging. I okay. am plugging. Um, a beautiful necklace on that is the shape of Silverstone. It was the track outline of Silverstone. It's mm -hmm. in sterling silver. Um, it is, I think, reasonably priced at about 80 pounds. It's from a... Money, Phil. Not, not weight. Money. <laughs> <laughs> it's from a, a woman named Alyssa Smith. Um, she and Susie have partnered together for the series of track layout designs. Oh, is it actually a partnership? It's actually a partnership. Oh. Um, and they not only did pendants for that Susie has worn on television, mm -hmm. um, they also have done charms to make an entire charm bracelet of the various track designs. All right, that's kind of cool. I like that better than the the charms that we see K Jeweler advertising, or like the Pandora stuff. Yeah. Yes. Um. So this week. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and to start out the England Silverstone race, we have to talk about the track. We have to talk about that management changed in January. And for the first time in a very long time, Silverstone was completely sold out. Yeah. 144,000 people at the race. It's the practice sessions. 
the practice sessions had over 80,000 people at them. Friday's practice had 85,000. They were expecting 350,000 fans over the three days. Now, compare this sharply to the numbers being down to 55,000 in Austria just two weeks ago, Mm -hmm. down from 90,000. The questions were flying. What is Silverstone doing right? And they're doing a lot of things right. Yes, absolutely. Um, Patrick Allen, who took over the Silverstone's managing director in January, immediately instituted an entirely new business plan. And what the core principle of his business plan is, he wanted to take the arrogance out of F1. (laughs) He says it himself. I mean, we're not talking about uncrapping F1. We're talking about taking the arrogance out and giving the people what they asked for and what they want. And the first things he did was he lowered the ticket price and he raised the free tickets for children, the the age for free tickets for children, from two years old to 11 years old. And that allowed families to come. Oh, he did even more than that, though. Do tell. Well, Friday, if you bought a weekend pass Mm -hmm. and were there on Friday, you got access to the pit lane. Yes. He has done, in a nutshell, he has worked to, unlike what Formula One has done, unlike what Bernie has been trying to do, he has looked to expand access for the fans, for the average fan. As opposed to making it harder to get in there, as opposed to using access as leverage to get what you want. He says, you know, this is, like we said, sharp contrast to Eccleston's model. He says, when you get it right and you understand what the fans really want and what they can afford, then they support you. Mm-hmm. If you are focused on a very high end product, then your volume drops significantly. Go ahead. Now, all of the things that he did to make the the track accessible, to make it about the fans, to put the fans in the center point of the whole thing, does not mitigate that there are a few other factors that really drew fans into the the. Uh, and, and Lewis Hamilton has a lot to do with there's it. There's the Lewis factor. Th- there's also yes, there were eighty thousand fans there, probably as much as. Two to three percent of those fans have some type of tie to either Formula One, um, to the existing teams, or to the British Racing Drivers Club and the various racing associations. Because let's face it, within 41 miles, within 40 miles of Silverstone is more than half the grid. All right. They've, they've got, and, and they all show up for this. They all, but even still, when you have 140-some-odd thousand people show up there, maybe 3,000 is related to the teams? Correct. Now, motorsports is a big deal in England to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it, it's one of the big sports that they have. But in the same, just kind of giving you an idea, they brought in more people in attendance than Wimbledon brings in. And Wimbledon counts their attendance over the two full weeks of Wimbledon. Oh, okay. So I was going to say, Wimbledon's kind of a small stadium, but... But they count attendance for the entire two weeks. We're talking a three-day period, and F1 brings in more people. Um, and 
it they it, even jensen said the the british they just love motor racing yeah um they had 40,000 at olden park for british touring cars i mean that's the kind of level that they are they support um uh Formula One. Formula One. I'm sorry. It's a big part <laughs> of their sports. social calendar. Everyone comes here and looks forward to big attendance. Knowledgeable crowds, supportive and intelligent, enthusiastic fans that who like the annual pilgrimage. That was where I was going with that. And that has a lot to it, but the other piece of it is, again, they made the effort to make the sport – to make the event. I shouldn't even say the sport. They made the effort to make the event accessible and to open up accessibility instead of closing it away and trying to pull stuff away and saying you need to spend well you need to basically give us your bank not even your bank account the whole bank just give it to us in order to get in if if you are anybody other than bernie eccleston who is looking to host a race you uh, well bernie eccleston in melbourne and you're looking to host a race pick up the phone call silverston pick up the phone call melbourne and find out what they're doing because they're doing it right mm-hmm. and then get rid of bernie eccleston well and because that's Jordan the other piece called for bernie to step down he has called for bernie to step down but that's the other thing is that bernie needs to get away from these ridiculous fees to host a race Yes, you have a premium product, but you have to be able to to make it affordable for your venues to host a race and make a profit, thereby bringing you more money. Exactly. And clearly there are elements of – this is the the article that I was reading sums it up perfectly. Clearly there are elements of Formula One that urgently need fixing. But the popularity of the British Grand Prix is not one of them. You know, maybe that's what the answer is, though, is to rethink the fee structure – for the races move away from the flat fee of okay you pay bernie or you pay cvc capital or or fom 35 40 million dollars to host the race and instead turn around and go two percent of your ticket sales yeah and make it based on your ticket sales and a percentage of your ticket sales make it so that it is Better for everybody if you if you pack more bodies into the race and and make it more accessible and and attract more people to the race. Mm-hmm. Put the onus on winning and winning at the 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 track, not the people on the mm-hmm. track. I'm not talking, about, but winning in the spectacle of F1 on everybody that's involved, because. We are past the days of if you build a track, they will come. Oh, we're long past that. And the reality is we've got to do more for the dollar. You're in an, an era of Formula One where the tracks have to compete for the dollar, especially the European tracks. It doesn't take much to catch a flight and go to a different track if that's not the one that's going to give you bang for your buck. Yeah. And yes, Silverstone's got cachet. Silverstone has got... um History. A history and a draw, but even Silverstone is saying we had to do something to put our fans first because just being Silverstone isn't good enough anymore. Well, it hasn't been for a while. I mean, Bernie almost walked away for Silverstone a few years ago. He almost walked away from England a few years ago. He's willing to walk away from somewhere that doesn't want to pay into his extortion. Well, and that's the problem. It's extortion. So... We had a race, and unlike what we normally do, we actually watched this race prior to recording. And I gotta say, you're welcome. The 
the best way to describe this race is to bring back one of our favorite Formula One intros. Fast. Furious. Heart-stopping. Heartbreaking. This is Formula One. That yeah. sums it up right there. You, you, you've heard it all. There's Everything the you need to know. Right there. <laughs> oh, my word, was that a race. Um, seriously, from lights out, I didn't believe that Mercedes was going to have a one-two. I thought they had lost it on the start line, and it was over. And then as Formula One does, as England does, with a change in weather, with a change in strategy, everything changed. And I got to tell you something. When they brought Lewis in to change to intermediates because there was threat of rain, I thought we had had Monaco all over again. And it was going to be a bad call. And I'm serious. I'm sitting there going, no, no, they've lost it for Lewis. That's bad. It's bad. And when Will Buxton said the minute Lewis pulled out of the pit lanes and the skies opened up and there was torrential downpour, there were tears. There were literally <laughs> tears coming down out of my eyes with the rain. Well, and we haven't watched any of the post-race coverage, and we'll get to my feelings about coverage because this was a frustrating one. Oh. Um, however, post-race, Toto Wolf came out and said that it was Lewis's call. Lewis was the one who made the call to bring the car in. Um, after the first patch of rain, he lost temperature in the front tires. He was having problems. He was the one who said, I'm coming in. He needed to shift to the Inters. When Nico heard that Lewis was coming in, Nico thought he got it wrong. Yeah, Nico said it got, he got it wrong. It was going to be wrong. And it turned out to be an inspired call. Two people. Two people on that grid got the call absolutely spot on perfect. And they, it was first and third, Lewis and Vettel. I don't think so. And to to quick little recap as to what your what the podium was, Lewis Hamilton took the win, Nico in second, Sebastian Vettel in third. Now the way this race played out, if you watch the first twenty races, this is not the result you would have expected. First twenty laps, or first twenty laps. Uh, thank you. The first 20 laps, this is not the result you would have expected. This is not the result you would have seen coming. It looked for all intents and purposes for the first half of this race like Williams was going to come away with a win. And a 1-2 win at that. Absolutely fantastic with Ferrari. Back in the mid-pack. Would have been lucky if, if they made it up past seventh, which was where Vettel was when things really went haywire. Which is why I I hold that Vettel coming in when he did, because he came in about the same time Lewis did, that that was an inspired move. I don't think so. I I, I think that Vettel could have come in at any point in the three or four laps around there and changed over to Inters, and he would have been just fine. Well, your contention is that Williams is crap in the rain. I think Williams stayed out too long in the rain. I don't think that they're great in the rain. I don't know how their drivers do normally in the rain, but I think they stayed out two laps too long. The reason why I think so is because of the way the gap shifted. And, and let, let's recap the race because you, we've jumped right to the end and, and what happened there. There was a lot that happened. The start oh. of this race, we had Lewis on pole with um, 
Nico Rosberg right behind him, followed by Massa, followed by Botas. And Lewis, and Lewis, as he got up to the grid to, at the end of the formation lap, complained that there was poor traction, and both Mercedes had a terrible start. And Massa's start was inspired. Massa took off like a rocket, and Botas wasn't all that far behind him. Um, they were dicing it up very close. Massa instantly took the lead um, with Botas splitting the two Mercedes. Um, and it was really close. Botas had second for a little bit. Lewis fought him pretty hard and managed to go and take over. However, before the end of the lap, and this is my first issue with the coverage. At the end of the lap, we had best that I can tell were multiple incidents Mm -hmm. coming out of turn one, two, and three. It was really – and typically when you have a lot of starting incidents – there's a lot of focus on what happened. The video that we see in the race, 99% of it, whether you're watching BBC, whether you're watching Sky, whether you're watching NBC Sports or anybody else, it's coming from the FIA. Right. The network has no control over what we're being fed. Typically, though, it's pretty good when there's an incident that you can see what happened. They find ways to bring angles that show you what happened and what that chain was that caused whatever it was i got us and they brought out a safety car there's plenty of time in that safety car period i gotta say at the end of that safety car period i still have no idea what the hell happened well okay we we know lotus has crashed into each other we know mclaren's crashed into each other but some of raw feed Notwithstanding, yes, we didn't go through the umpteen bazillion different lines there, but we rely on the commentators to explain some of what they see happening. They see a little bit more than what we're being shown. They've got some more information, and quite frankly, I think the combination of us not getting the good replays of the multiple incidents that happened about, oh, turn three, um, along with some absolutely and quite frankly poor commentating on NBC Sports' behalf, I think the combination of it means that we don't know 100% what happened. I'm dying to know what ultimately happens when we get to our chance to watch again the BBC coverage. And, um, But that doesn't change the fact that we did see multiple replays of the brilliant start by Massa. It made the Mercedes look like they were standing still. It was. It was fantastic. And and again, between Massa flying through and Bodas, who who had a good little dive in there. I mean, there was a great little battle between Lewis and, and Valtteri. Now, safety car came came out, and when it cleared, Lewis was gun and made it clear he was gunning for for uh, Massa. And couldn't pull it off. No. Massa managed to go and defend. Um, And actually, Lewis was pushing so hard that that probably cost him initially that second place. Right. Valtteri managed to come ahead. It looked like probably about turn three or turn four. Um, Lewis overran the track limits. Now, again, going back to NBC and not listening to everything that was going on and being said and why it was happening. 
NBC instantly jumped to this conclusion that, oh, Lewis went all four over. He's going to have to give up places. He's going to get pen- penalty. He's going to get penalized. All these other issues. But the reality was it was a racing incident. He was racing. This wasn't an issue where the, the concern that we had heard from Charlie Whiting in um, the two corners. Um, Cops is one. Yeah, Copes was one, and the other was turn nine, and I'm drawing a blank as to which one that was, was that if they basically underbraked and overran, mm-hmm. they would they would be penalized for it. Times were being deleted for it. That wasn't what this was at all. No. This was no. simple racing, and this is what everybody wants to see. So good on Charlie Whiting, good on Nigel Mansell, who was the uh, the driver uh, marshal, yeah. for n- recognizing this for exactly what it was and not pulling a penalty on this. Right. I mean, truly, Lewis was squeezed to all four tires off the track. He was squeezed rightfully and lost a grid panel, a grid place for it. On the track, not artificially because somebody took it away from him. He lost it because he pushed a little sooner than he probably should have against Massa and paid the price for it. Yeah. But I got to say, the first 20 laps of this race was just fantastic, fantastic racing. Oh. It, it looked for all the world like Valtteri was going to get passed. Oh, yeah. It was just a matter of when he was going to pass Massa. Um, he was pushing hard. We spent 25 laps watching the first four cars. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about the midfield. We didn't talk about the back end of the, the race. We were talking about the first four cars, which I don't think we've actually had all season. We haven't had for 20 laps for the top four cars to be all within about a second and a half of each other because Valtteri was running between uh, point thirty and point. 50 behind um massa behind massa with lewis half a second behind him and nico a half second behind him we haven't had that before especially for that long in a lot of ways that beginning of that race with those four cars up front and that's all we were talking about made me re- reminded me of bahrain last year it, it is and you know the, the the formula one's become processional oh my word what happened this this is going to be a race that will be in highlight reels for years oh yeah because of how this started out. now around lap 20 things start to get a little squirrely because we start hearing that rain is on its way in within a half hour out and i said to you prophetically if it rains everything goes out the window Yep. Along with that, everybody's got a pit at this point. Mercedes brings in Lewis first before anybody else. He goes to the harder tires. And as we had seen, Kimmy had gone in about three laps earlier and set a blistering pace. Mm-hmm. Lewis goes in and take, he's gone like a shot. And Williams follows. At this point, they can't keep up. Right. Which it kind of makes sense. Lewis has been set free. He's gone. Then the rains come. And then it's everybody's best guess as to when to bring them in for the inners because Silverstone being a big track and a long track and rain being what it is, it's not raining raining at all parts of the track at the same time. It's almost like spa. 
So at some point, it's raining on half the track, and it, half the track is, is wet, needs enters, and half the track is dry and needs the slicks. I mean, when do you pull them in? When do you not? And you gamble wrong. That was one of those things that you roll that dice just wrong, and you missed it. And, and this was one of those points that Valtteri asked to come in a couple of times, and the team said, no, it's dry out on the pit lane. We're leaving you out there. Ferrari made the call. They brought Raikkonen early, mm-hmm. and Raikkonen paid the price for it. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure we're going to be hearing complaints from Ra- from Kimi over the fact that, once again, the team blew a strategy call. And it, it, it's one of those dicey times in a race. Either you get it right and you're spot on, or you blow it completely. Williams's case, I think, was a little different. Nico's... Nico actually did very well in that changing condition. As they got around the back end there, the, those those final couple of turns where it was wettest, Valtteri started struggling. Nico came on song. Nico blew past just before everybody started diving in for, for to to move to the inners, but that gave him his second place. Lewis started struggling as Nico started picking up on him. He had an off where he lost about 11 seconds, plus Nico started picking up almost a second a sector on Lewis when he boxed him. But Lewis, when Lewis pulled into the pits to get his enters, honestly, it didn't look like it was going to be wet enough for that to occur. It didn't. We, we, I thought he was going to have another Kimmy call. It was going to be bad. And he left the pit box and the sky opened up and gave him the wet track that those enters need so desperately. And he laid down the rubber like he was supposed to. And Kimmy chewed his tires. So what was it? It was about three or four laps early Kimmy came in for the enters. The issue with the intermediates is that they have a very – even – I think it's slightly better than than the full wets, but they have a very narrow operating window with temperature. Mm-hmm. And it becomes – when you've got these changing conditions with especially the intermediates, they have to be kept cool. And the only way to keep them cool is to run them through the wet spot. So if you've got large dry patches of track, it chews up those tires. Right. And by going out too early, he's, he chewed up his tires – ran a bit slower. Now, this is the other thing is that, and and this is why I say that, that Williams' downfall is that they run like crap in the rain, is that when Massa changed over to uh, Inters, he was within two or three, he came out and stayed pretty closely within two or three seconds of Nico. Mm-hmm. But as the weather got worse, they got slower. With Massa dropping back, ultimately, I think he was something like 30 seconds back, and um, Valtteri ended up a minute behind Lewis. They could not keep up. The Ferraris did a whole lot better. All of a sudden, that's when Vettel started picking up. And when the Williams dropped back as far as they did, it really wasn't all that hard for for Seb to start picking them off, and that's what he did. Well— I think you're right to a point, but I also think that had Williams come in a lap or two earlier for their enters, they would have had that much longer on the right track at the right moment. They wouldn't have lost ground ahead of that. And I also firmly hold that some of it's driver. 
I know that Vettel, he does fairly well in the rain. Yeah. And so, you know, you've got drivers that are out there that do well in the rain that don't, and others that don't do well in the rain. And, you know, it's one of those moments when you really wish that Button hadn't been taken out in lap three because I would have thought that Button could have done very, very well because he loves those changeable half-track conditions. He does. Um, I th- think with the performance of that car, it really wouldn't have mattered all that much, but who knows. Hey, but Alonso got a point. He did. He he now finally has a point and is on the board. So he's tied with, with Jensen now. That he has a point. Yes. But McLaren's got four. Yes, McLaren has four, but Alonso is t- in the driver's championship. They're tied. <sighs> okay. So that is where the race shook out. We will have audio next week. Yes. Not this week. No. <laughs> You've run out of stuff? Yeah. I'm done. Lewis won. I'm very happy. We shall be <laughs> celebrating. So, yeah, that's where the, the race shook out. Um, if you have not seen the race, well, we're, we're sorry that we have just given it away, but it is definitely worth watching. Arguably, this will go down as it, probably the best race of the year. For wheel-to-wheel racing, fantastic. Pushing it to pushing when driving to the limits – I honestly think that we had a good race. Now, I also think people took note as to what they were airing. Um, I think the F, um, FIA took note as to what uh, messages to allow to go through. There was no talk of Lift and Coast. And, I mean, yes, I it get It may not have been an issue with this track. But but there was none of the talk of saving tires or managing. It was, can I race? Can I flat out? You know, can I pass him? Botas and Massa's conversation back and forth of, you know, let me pass. I've got more space and, you know, whether or not. That's the kind of messages we should be hearing. And that's, that I think goes back to that Toto Wolf comment is people only know what we give them. Mm -hmm. And that becomes perception. And so if we're not guardians of the perception, we're not doing a good job. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what we should, we should really, if if F1 wants to save and uncrap itself, it needs to look at what what it's putting out there. And is it really showing its best foot forward all the time? And the other piece of that becomes, again, with the message that's going home, they need to be taking a very close look at what some of their broadcast partners are and are not doing. Correct. Um, we watched this race um, over – normally we would watch it off the BBC. We caught it – Delayed, I guess is the best way to put it. But we didn't even watch it from NBC Sports like we normally did. We watched it streaming over the Apple TV through the NBC Sports app. Mm-hmm. And I've got to turn around and say, for starters, as much as I love the fact that I can now get content from NBC Sports on demand, that I think was a great move. The fact that NBC Sports every day, if not more often than that, requires me to go and log onto a computer and validate a subscription, a cable subscription in order to access their complement is absolutely terrible. I've got an Apple TV sitting in a location where I don't have a computer, and I don't normally bring a computer. So to turn around and go, oh, you know, I think I'm going to go watch Free Practice 2, or I'm going to watch the the streaming coverage of, of the race, and then get greeted with the, oh, you need to verify that you have a cable subscription, run to a computer, log in, and do all that stuff is incredibly frustrating. 
almost as frustrating as when I'm watching a stream to get kicked out of that stream, restart it, and then have to validate all over again. Right. That was that sucked, especially when it was at pinnacle points of hearing the race. Lot 42, and I get kicked out of the stream and have to go and re-authenticate. And NBC is the only provider that I have seen so far, the only broadcast content provider on Apple TV that I have seen so far that requires every 24 hours at a minimum for you to go and authenticate through and validate that you've, you've got a subscription. It's overkill. It's ridiculous. I get that you need to preserve your, your investment and in what you're putting out, but enough is enough. Along the same lines... I'm sorry, but it is time for David Hobbs to go. Well, I w- still would like to know when he starts drinking before a broadcast. I'm I'm positive he does. He has to. Man has no control over his mouth. He's barely making words make sense. And truly, he was relevant 40 years ago. <laughs> and I get that NBC Sports, in order to, to carry this coverage, needs to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And they have to run ads. I, I I understand that, and there's a time and a place and, and a need to do that as opposed to, say, BBC and some of these others who can afford to, to run it commercial-free. But really, when you've got a battle up at the front to go and break to a commercial, multiple times, not just break to a commercial, but to break to a commercial for upwards of three minutes. Well, see, here's the thing I don't understand. They will delay commercials for football. Mm-hmm. baseball and basketball why can we not figure out how to delay commercials for auto racing well i get that and, and i'm sure they did delay to some point but they weren't any better and the number of time you know when they delayed it wasn't any better than mm-hmm. it, it all just kind of sucked the as usual has been a problem with them the radio messages that you miss because they're going to commercial and you can see the message come up. The radio messages that you miss because they talk over them. Mm-hmm. It's it's awful. You got nothing else? Not on how bad NBC Sports is, but can I talk about my favorite commentator for a minute? And we'll close out the show on a warm, fuzzy story about Mr. Tight Pants himself. Okay. So from my rant to... Tight pants. I don't know how to segue that. (laughs) Well, I need you to stop ranting, and then we can talk about David Cothard for a minute. Okay. Well, we talked about the fact that David Hobbs is no longer relevant Mm -hmm. in so very many ways and possibly drunk. Um, So, (laughs) You know, I did not see David Hobbs wearing a BRDC pin. Maybe he doesn't have a membership in BRDC. Well, I would assume he would be a member. He is a British racing driver. That he is. Or was. But. When uh, they still use, they, they powered the cars with their feet. <laughs> and stone tires. You know, yes. He, he raced when Flintstones came on. That, that was his, his pit engineer was Fred. Barney. Yes. Yabba dabba do. All right. So I found this little article on David Cothard's family values. Um, now, for those in the United States that don't know, David Cothard is one of the three commentators of the BBC's coverage of F1. He is a former driver. He's driven for uh, Williams, Red Bull, and McLaren. He still has a fairly close relationship with Red Bull. 
Yes, he does. I think Red Bull was his last team. Yes. Um, and a very much of a team player, mm-hmm. very known to be a team player. Um, not a world championship uh, to his name, um, but still a very good. I think he had like 16 race wins. Yeah. As he says, not enough. Yeah. Um, but very knowledgeable and very even keeled about the sport and you know he's got great passion for the sport but how to how to approach it i think he's a very good balanced commentator and in many ways i think he's a better commentator than he was a driver and he can be found in some of the other series he he will run in the the race of cha- tournament of champions which is various uh obviously champions running but but from a variety of disciplines within racing and he's won that several times even after he's retired from formula one very interesting now his his father was in um the family transport business so he grew up as a kid being able to sit in the big trucks and (laughs) so he's always been around engines and things like that but didn't come from a warm fuzzy kind of family um he describes as it was mother and father not mummy and daddy um and that's not something that he wants for his own family. He's uh, much more of a hands-on kind of dad. Okay. Um, anyway, but his parents didn't push them in school. They weren't scholars by any stretch of the imagination. Three kids. Um, but it was all about uh, mucking in and helping out in the family. Um, described that his mother would cook dinner and his dad would do dishes after dinner with the son of the chosen son that day. And so they were always required to do the dishes after dinner and such like that. Um, his mother was always scared when he drove. <laughs> um, but his father was a Scottish karting championship and bought the first kart at 11. Now, they would, his mother would be at the sink and they'd be flying by in the cart with no crash helmets on. Um, Makes sense. But his brother Duncan was the daredevil um, who had speed and bravery. His sister had speed. But Coth- but David Cothard had the work ethic, and he's the one that advanced because he would work hard. Um, he's been he's been lucky, but he's been driven, and so he doesn't do the self pity thing very much about you know his level of success or anything. And I've like never that. seen him do that. Um, a couple of years ago, he lost his sister to depression. Um, really, an overdose of prescription drugs says it's probably a low point in the family history of having to bury his sister. Um, because he doesn't do the self-pity thing very well, I don't think he fully understood depression as an illness and figured that he could help her by inviting her anywhere in the world that he was going and she could come along with him, but she had to move at his pace and I don't think she was quite mm. there. Um, as a teenager, he wanted to be married, but as he got better in the sport, he they put that aside yeah. and met his uh, wife, his now wife, they married in 2013, uh, Karen, uh, about 10 years ago. Now, he said that when he met her, one of the things he admired most was that she already had a seven-year-old daughter. And he saw that as being her independence and self-reliance and being compatible and that that was a great thing, not baggage. Which I thought was an interesting yeah. way of looking at um, his, his love being having somebody, having a, a child from another relationship. He does not subscribe that his his mar- his date that he got married was his best day of his entire life. Okay. But on the other hand, he got a call recently from the school nurse that his son had hurt himself, and that 
the drive over was all of the fear and the connotations mm. of that. So what he sees as being, you know, it's it's being a dad is so important to him that that was more tragic than the flip side of his wedding day being somehow the best day of his entire life. Um, and he is his son is six, but this is the part that I loved the most about this story. He flew home from Australia to do two mornings. Um, just to have two mornings with his family, um, and then flew all the way back to Malaysia. He's that committed to being a family oh, man. Wow. Um, and when we're home in the evening, Karen does the cooking and I do the dishes, just like his own parents. Okay. Um, and though if he has to do dinner, he suggests takeaways so that he doesn't have <laughs> to give up two hours of time in the kitchen because he doesn't have a whole lot of time at home. And unlike the, uh, his own upbringing, he cuddles with his sons and kisses him and hopes that continues. Um, and he says, I, I, I'm not being weird. There'll be a point where he doesn't want that, but I hope he'll start to kiss me on the cheek. I've lived in Monaco for ten, 20 years, and we greet our friends that way. My father certainly didn't do that, though. I just, it, the warmth of him being a family man was just so apparent in the entire article of who he is and how his his upbringing has mirrored in his own family life, but the things that he's wanted to fix from his family and how important being there is to him. I mean, he flies all over the world for a very long sporting season. Yeah. And to fly back from Australia just to make it back to Malaysia just so he could have two mornings with his family. Well, you know, you compare that to um, Susie Perry's predecessor, Anchoring the Formula One coverage, Jake Humphreys, mm-hmm. who that was precisely the reason why he left was because the schedule was too much and he couldn't spend the time with his family that he wanted. And yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a hard schedule. And, and you, you know, as much as we complain and we don't like this, oh, we've got a week off between races, you know, or three weeks off as we've got coming up. Um, but you also look at it. I mean, he's got a family. He's got, you know, the two kids now. Um, Jake Humphreys has a family. But you contrast that with 30-year-old Lewis Hamilton, who is out gallivanting and traveling at all that he can. And he's even said recently that he doesn't want to be considered that he's in his golden years of F1. But he knows his time is ending, and he's got to take it to the max and he wants to enjoy all of it that he can but he has no wife and he has no children and i'm sure he has somebody that can watch roscoe for him so why not go off and gallivant around the world and enjoy all of that while he can and then allow himself to settle down later well he's got plenty of time now to go off and do that because our next race is july 26th it's three weeks away. Yeah. Well, that's because Germany got canceled. And then we have our summer break, and uh, the race after that will be all the way uh, the end of August, August 23rd. So we're getting ready to move into a dry period here. Whatever will we talk about? Well, we have a cruise to talk about. We do? We have Bermuda to talk about. And I'm sure that silly season is going to ramp up a bit, although I am guessing we will hear nothing about Kimi Räikkönen's Kimi Räikkönen's fate until later this year. Oh, no. No, it's going to be a while. And I think we'll fill some of the mid-pack seats first. But uh, until next week, as we wrap up our Formula One, or, or our uh, 
Silverstone coverage next week. We'll have a couple of last-minute pieces, I'm sure, to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, until next week, make sure you uh, head over and check us out on the website over at www.thebelokeandabird.com. We, we want to hear from more than just Phil. I mean, if it wasn't for Phil, we wouldn't know that we had to specify that we're talking about pounds, we're talking about currency as opposed to weight. Thank you, Phil. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We love you, Phil. Also, um, like us over on the Facebook page. That is another great way to go and and, uh, give us some feedback and tell us what you like, what you don't like, whether or not we're just absolutely completely wrong or better yet, completely right. I like that, too. (laughs) Of course you do. But if you wanted to tell me that I'm right and Michael's wrong, that's even better. Yeah, but that won't happen very often. Oh, shush you. <laughs> and then also remember, you can find us over on iTunes and on Stitcher. But uh, with that, I think we will call it a show. 